Man, thanks for being here. I'm going to take your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 18. We've been following Abram and Sarai around the desert. And since we last saw them last week, they've actually had their names changed by God to Abraham and Sarah. Abram means exalted father and Abraham means father of many. God changed his name and God changed Sarai's name to Sarah, which I'm so grateful for. It was so hard to pronounce Sarai. That's not even a real name, I don't think. And it looked like I couldn't read, but that's really how you pronounced it. So Abraham and Sarah, we've been following them around the book of Genesis. Uh, They live a semi-nomadic life. Uh, Living in borrowed land, they bring their tents to one place, settle there for a while, move on to another. And we're following them around because that's what it feels like to be a Christian in our culture. It feels like we live in borrowed land. Some places we are totally at home. In some places we know this is not my home, this is somebody else's home. I remember the first time I came to Houston, Texas. I'm not a native Texan, I apologize. Uh, I'm not a native Houstonian, I also apologize for that. I, I grew up in Missouri. The very first time I came to Houston, I was 16 years old. And I came actually on a, a trip with my church back in Missouri. They looked out into the world and they said, what city needs the most help? And uh, they found Houston. And so our church regularly sent teenagers down here to minister here in our city. And so I came at 16 years old. My, my very first meal in Houston was a Whataburger not too far from here, which is actually a pretty strong start, I think, to, uh, to a Houston meal, a uh, Whataburger. Uh, my very first house when I eventually moved here uh, was on the other side of Spring Branch from here. It was later condemned by the city. Uh, that was the kind of house uh, that it was. It was kind of dilapidated and I lived there. And we had roosters to our right and in the middle of the night I would look out into our yard and see people congregated uh, there in our front yard. So it was a very interesting neighborhood uh, to live in. Uh, this is the city where I fell in love with my wife. Uh, we were one time at the Northwest Mall. Nobody goes to the Northwest Mall anymore, but we did back then. They had an amazing food court. And uh, we were there eating, and I tricked her into admitting that she wanted to marry me, which is not a big deal, except for we had only been dating for two weeks. Uh, so uh, that was a pretty impressive feat by me. And, uh, so for me, all signs pointed to Houston, Texas. So eventually I moved here and this was just going to be home because it just felt like this is where I was going to end up. All signs pointed here. Maybe that's not your experience. Maybe you grew up here. You were born here. This is where your family happens to live. This is where your people are. Uh, Others of us are here only for monetary reasons, honestly. This is where the job market was strongest. This is where your, your job transferred you. They gave you a choice. You can move to Houston or you can you know, find another job and you're like, Houston sounds good. Um, it doesn't matter though why we ended up here, whether you know, this was a God-ordained place for you to live or you were just born here and this is where you've stayed or you're here simply because your vocation sent you here. God has a spiritual reason for you living in this city with a very practical purpose, a spiritual reason with a very practical benefit. Our responsibility is to advocate for our city before God. That you and I would be people who intercede for Houston, Texas, and not just the city of Houston, but the people of Houston. That we would 
care so much about the people that we live around that we would willingly interject ourselves into the middle of God's relationship with this city. That's what Abraham is going to show us this morning. So Genesis chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 16. A little background. Uh, Abraham has three visitors come to him. And he knows that they're special immediately because the scripture says he runs to greet them. Now Abraham is a very wealthy man. He's a very sophisticated man. But he knows that these three visitors are very special. And we find out from the scripture, uh, two of them are angels. And one of them he refers to as the Lord. And we believe, based on the scripture interpreting itself, that this is actually Jesus Christ come to earth before he came to earth Uh, hundreds of years later in the Christmas story. So Jesus has appeared to Abraham with two angels and they bring a message to Abraham. And this is what happens in verse 16. Then the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, this is Jesus speaking to Abraham, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Verse 20, then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So it says that the outcry from the suffering in Sodom rises up to the Lord. Now, we all know what happens to Sodom. Even if this is your first time around church, you've watched enough television, you've heard enough metaphors in our society to know that the the Sodom's story is not a good story. Fire actually rains down from the sky and uh, consumes Sodom and consumes uh, Gomorrah and usually... Uh, somehow it gets kind of simplified to us that Sodom's only sin was the sin of homosexuality. But that's not actually the case when you read it. That was definitely present in the story. But there was also just a general perversity uh, in Sodom. We know that from uh, Lot, Abraham's nephew's daughters, actually commit an incredibly grievous sin against their own father just a chapter from now. There was just a perversity about Sodom. There was also an aggression to that perversity. And it says that there was an outcry, which means that people were suffering in Sodom. It's not just that the people of Sodom were doing some things that God did not want. It meant that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were doing things that God did not want, and people were being hurt and harmed. And those people who were being harmed, they were crying out to God. Now, they may not have known which God that they were crying out to, but their suffering went up to God. And look what it says in verse 21. It says, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. Now, Houston is not Sodom, obviously, but it's not perfect either. In fact, uh, somebody sent me a, a study recently This organization gave out grades, essentially scores, to the safest cities in America. If you got 100, that meant you were just, it was was the safest a city could be. So the the A was 100 and then all the way down. You know what Houston scored? A 5. So not only did Houston get an F, it 
barely signed its name on the test, essentially. So our city is not incredibly safe. You know that. You've watched the news before. There is an incredible amount of darkness here. I mean, you think about the kinds of darkness that we see consistently. We have, you know, sexual sin all around us. We have billboards that promote sexual sin. We have addiction all over the place. We have violence all over the place. We have greed all over the place. We have pride in our city. There's an incredible amount of darkness in our city. We're not Sodom. None of us would think of ourselves as that way. But yet we are a very dark city. Now, what is this? Is this like a... God judged Sodom, so God is going to judge Houston type of message. Is this where we're going with this? I don't don't think so. You know, sometimes that happens. Pastors get up and they say crazy things like that. Is is Houston going to be judged? Is that what kind of message this is? No. Is Houston going to be judged? Yes. Because all of us are under God's judgment. Every city is under God's judgment. Every person is under God's judgment. That's the gospel. The gospel is that we are offenders. The gospel is that we are rebels. The gospel is that we are sinners and we are under God's judgment, his just judgment, but he loved us and he sent Jesus so that instead of judgment, we could receive grace. So yeah, Houston will be judged, but every city will be judged. But we give great, get grace from Jesus. We even see this in Jesus when he appears to Abraham. Look what it says in verse 21. I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And when we think of God judging Sodom and destroying Sodom, and what mental picture do you get? God is a million miles away. He looks down at the sin of Sodom and he just starts hurling fireballs down from the sky. But there's distance always in our imagination. That God is unmoved by it, that he doesn't care, that he gives it out very coldly. But he doesn't. Jesus himself comes down to investigate whether or not the suffering that has risen up to him is actually the suffering that is happening. I mean, think about the grace there that, that even though Sodom is judged, it was judged carefully. It was judged slowly. Jesus himself came to see, you know, I think many people are waiting for evidence that God hates people. You know, just, I think in our culture, that's what we assume. That if God could do something like this, then it just means that he hates people. Or, you know, we are sinners and we are awful. And we're all waiting for the big reveal when we can know for sure that God really hates us. But I think even this story and the fact that Jesus himself comes down shows us that God is just, but he is not cold. He's just, but he still loves, he still cares. And that brings up an important question, I think. Does God still judge cities in this way? Sometimes you will hear, you know, pastors come on television after national disasters and and, uh, make some big decree like this disaster was because of this fill-in-the-blank sin, you know what I'm talking about. And every time a pastor gets on television, I just cringe, you know, because it's never good. Rarely does a pastor get on television and, you know, I'm like, man, I'm proud to be a pastor. You know, usually when they, I see him on TV, I just turn the channel because I don't want to know, you know, because those are my brethren and I don't like all my brethren and the way they represent us folk, you know. Um, and, uh, and, and so, but it, it, does God... Does he use natural disasters, tsunamis, earthquakes, hurricanes? You know, does God use that? Is that God judging 
the world? Is that God judging a city? Is that true? I, I don't know. I don't know, and I don't think anybody knows. I think that's one of those things when we can cling to the scripture that says God's ways are higher than our ways. And I don't know. I know that this world is broken by sin and we experience suffering because of the brokenness in the world. And where that brokenness ends and God's judgment begins, that's a bigger question I think that any of us in our finite minds will be able to understand. All I know is that we should follow the method of Jesus when it came to pronouncing God's judgment, which is to warn of a judgment to come, which is true. There is a judgment that's to come. We're all under God's judgment. By God's grace, we get Jesus in a way out of that judgment. That's our message. Jesus warned of a judgment to come at the end of the age, and then he served the people who he had just warned. I think that's an appropriate place for the church in our city to be. Yes, God is holy, God is just, judgment is coming, that's important to know. And at the same time, I've just warned you, now let me serve you in Jesus' name. That's what Jesus does and that's what Abraham does. Look what it says in verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So the two angels go on to Sodom. Jesus and Abraham are there together overlooking the city. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Verse 31, and he said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Verse 32, then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. And when he had finished speaking to Abraham... And Abraham returned to his place. So Abraham does a little bargaining with God. And Abraham has some courage here, doesn't he? I mean, he starts with 50. What about 50? Would you spare the city for 50 righteous people there? And Jesus says, uh, okay, for 50. I'm humble and I'm dust and I'm ashes. What about 45? Do I hear 40? Do I hear 30? What about 20? What about 10? And he bargains with God. And this is the most amazing thing. The Lord listens to him. The Lord says, okay. Abraham interjects himself into this situation. Listen, God will listen to our prayers for our city. He has sovereignly decided to be affected by the prayers that we pray. 
I think one of the biggest questions that we all have when it comes to actually praying is, does my, do my prayers make a difference? We know our actions make a difference. We know serving makes a difference. We know giving makes a difference. But really, when it's just us and no one's around and we're just alone and we're praying, do our prayers really make a difference? There's proof here that they make a difference. God has sovereignly decided that he will be affected by our prayers. He will be moved. Now remember, Lot, Abraham's nephew, chose Sodom over Abraham twice. The first time earlier in Genesis is Lot, uh, Abraham's nephew, and and his uh, workmen, his ranchers, they get into conflict with Abraham's ranchers. And so Abraham and Lot come together. They say, there's too many of us to all settle in one place. And Abraham says, listen, why don't you pick the land that you want? And so Lot looks out, instead of being humble and saying, thank you, you know, Uncle Abraham for taking care of me and providing for me and bringing me into your family, looking after me after my father died, Listen, I'll fire all my ranchers. I'm with you. Instead of doing that, he says, um, the valley where Sodom and Gomorrah and those cities, that's the lush place. That's the nice place. I'm going to settle there. So in Lot's mind, he gave his uncle Abraham the leftovers. Then, after Lot has moved near Sodom, he gets captured in a battle. All his family, all his possessions. Word gets to Abraham. Abraham, Abraham raises up his, his men that are kind of in his clan and they go and rescue Lot and what does Lot do after his uncle Abraham has rescued him he immediately moves back into Sodom I think Abraham had every excuse to not want for Sodom to be saved to have a cold heart towards Sodom but that's not what we see here he had a soft heart towards the people of Sodom even though they were wicked, even though they were broken, even though his nephew who lived there had chosen the city over him twice, he had a soft heart. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 encourages us to have a tender heart, which is not something really that, you know, at least the men in here are aspiring to, you know, oh, that sweet man, he's so tender hearted. Like maybe after you're like 65, that's a compliment. But before that, I'm not really sure. Like, I don't have a naturally tender heart. Amanda's nickname for me in private, now it's public that I'm telling you, is Stonehenge because my heart is made of stone. That's what my, my very own wife has said about her beloved husband. And it's true, it's true. Since I was a young man, I've made it my vow to never cry. Just never cry. Any time that I feel emotion, to tuck that down deep, deep, deep inside. Well, the problem is there are some things that are so moving in this life, either sad or happy, that you just can't, you know, tuck it down. So, like, I was watching Marley and Me, you know, this movie. And we were at the... We were at the movie theater with my sister and her husband. It was a very cool downtown movie theater. And, you know, Marley and Me is a wonderful movie. It's got some sad parts. No spoilers here. It's got some sad parts. If they're going to make a movie about a dog, you know there's going to be some sad parts at the end. It's just, you know, part of the nature. And so the sad part comes, like the really sad part. And I'm doing my best to choke it down, choke it down like everyone else is. <laughs> but I'm like, not me, not me, not Stonehenge. No, you know, I'm... I'm choking it down. Well, I couldn't. And in, in the silence of the movie, I go, <laughs> loud. Everybody turns to me. So this is the way I've lived most of my life, trying to choke that stuff down until 
Our daughter, Annabeth, was on the way. We found out that there was a little girl. Jackson was our boy. He was first. That's what I was kind of hoping we were going to have just because I was an expert at being a boy. You know, he was three, so I was really proud in my expertise. Uh, But we found out that we were having a girl, and all of a sudden, like, I just start crying all the time. Like, I don't know why. Just stuff is, like, moving me, and I'm crying. I'm trying to do it privately, but then I would have to tell Amanda. I wanted to make sure, like, I was not having a mental breakdown or something, like, emotional break. Like, I'm crying all the time, and she's like, God is preparing you to have a girl. And I'm like, she's going to make me cry, you know? <laughs> she's like, yeah, she's going to be a teenager one day, you know? And, and so, so I'm crying all the time. And now, like, this last week, I, like, you know, cried three times watching The Voice on television, you know, the singing deal. <laughs> Like, I don't know, like, I'm just a, I'm just a big ball of emotions. But having a tender heart, you know, a soft heart, it seems like the position of weakness, doesn't it? The position of strength in our imaginations would be the, I can hold it together, I can choke it down, I can be unmoved. But really, having a soft and tender heart is not a position of weakness. In fact, I think it takes more strength to have a soft heart and keep a tender heart in our society and culture than it does to have a hard heart. I think just the natural course of living in this culture that we live in hardens your heart to people and to things. To keep a soft and tender heart is actually The position of strength, it takes a stronger man, it takes a stronger woman to keep a soft and tender heart towards people in this culture than it does to have a hard heart. It means when you have a tender heart that you will be more vulnerable, which is scary, but you can't be like Jesus without a soft heart. Jesus' heart was never hard towards people. I want you to see a different experience In Luke chapter 9, so Abraham, he intercedes for a a city that rejected God and his ways. I want to show you what happens to two disciples. Luke chapter 9. It says this in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That means he's on a mission headed towards Jerusalem. The cross is going to happen. The resurrection is going to happen. Verse 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Now remember the Samaritans lived kind of in between the north of Israel and the south of Israel. They were a similar people, but they were very distinct. There was a lot of racial tension between the Israelites and the Samaritans. Verse 53, but the people, the Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. See, there was a, they have a real similar religion because they have similar roots. But where the Israelites believed Jerusalem was the holy city, the Samaritans had their own holy city. So the fact that Jesus is headed to the holy city of Jerusalem bothered them. And they didn't want any part of Jesus coming through if he was on his way to the holy city of Jerusalem. Verse 54, and when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So James and John, they are personally offended on Jesus' behalf. How, how could they reject you? That doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem appropriate. 
do you want us to judge them? There was history in the scripture uh, in Samaria where the prophet Elijah actually called fire down from the sky to consume some enemies, an enemy army who had come to capture him. And so even in Samaria, Samaria, there was history of fire coming down from the sky. You have the experience of Sodom here. And so James and John, they're very serious. Like, do you want us to call fire down from the sky? And Jesus rebukes them. And he, he says, absolutely not. See, I think... Sometimes, rather than bearing with a city that rejects God and his ways, it's easier to just wash our hands of it. Now, we may not actually want to call fire down and consume Houston, Texas, but there is a part of every one of us when we see that they are rejecting Jesus, they are rejecting his ways, they're living in sin, wickedness, the brokenness of this city, that we go, you know what? They're just going to get what they deserve. I'm done with that. They deserve that. It's easier to wash our hands of the city than to extend grace. But we can't intercede without a tender heart. We can't pray effectively without our love engaged. Have you ever tried to pray with somebody that you're mad at? No, because it's impossible. Like you're just having a conversation with the air. God is not hearing that prayer when you're trying to pray with someone you are mad at. We can't pray effectively with our city if we don't love our city, if we don't love the people of our city. And listen, for most of us, or or maybe not most of us, for me personally, I don't pray for our our city as often as I should. I'm not concerned for the people of our city because to to me, sometimes I get so focused on what I'm doing, on my life, on my problems, on what's in front of me, what I have to do on my family. I get so focused on that that everyone else is just background noise. You know, when you go to a restaurant, you're having a conversation with the people at the table. You can hear all the other conversations, but it's just background noise. That describes most of our relationship and care towards our city and the people that we live with and work with. People that we share a neighborhood with, share a part of town with. Just background noise. Just necessary furniture in our story where we are the main characters. But we can't pray effectively and intercede like Abraham if our heart is not tender towards the people. The real people with faces and names. They're not just bodies on freeways and neighbors who live in other houses in our neighborhoods. People who take up parking spaces in our apartment complex. They're real people made in the image of God. They are not background noise. And some of us have cared for those people at one time or another, but it's hard to keep on caring. It's hard to keep our hearts off because there's just so much to wound us. And there's so, so much violence in our city, that, so much darkness in our city, sometimes that we just become numb to it. We can't engage in every story of murder. We can't engage in every story of breaking and entering and theft and Road rate. We can't get engaged in every story, so we just become numb to all the stories. We're unmoved by people. We become apathetic. We get just used to living around evil. But if God is going to do a work in our city, there needs to be a revival of care in his people. There needs to be a revival, awakening in us to people. To real people with real names, real faces.
This is what the scripture encourages us to do in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It says this in verse 1. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So we should pray. Those are synonyms. Supplication, prayers, intercessions. Uh, for all people, then specifically for our leaders, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Then look at verse 4. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. See, God's desire is for us to pray for people. That desire is connected to his desire to save people. He desires us to pray for people that he desires to save. Listen, you may never get the opportunity in your office, you know, in an office meeting, uh, you know, maybe you're gonna gather at your place tomorrow morning for a team meeting before your shift starts. You know, your boss is probably not gonna say to you, hey, you know, Curtis, do you have anything to say to us right now? And you're gonna feel inspired by the Spirit, step up into the moment and say, yes, you are sinners, you're under God's judgment, but God loves you and sent Jesus. You're, you're probably not gonna get that opportunity. And if you do, take it, but, you know, maybe start sending out your resumes ahead of time, you know. You're probably not gonna get that opportunity. But you can influence your office or your place of business by praying. You know, your part of town may not have a rally where they bring the whole section of the city out and there happens to be a microphone there and you just wander up on the stage and in front of your whole neighborhood, your whole part of the city, you step up and say, let me tell you about Jesus in the beginning. You're probably not going to get that opportunity, but you can influence you're part of town through prayer. You may not get to ride with the police to bring in criminals who are doing unjust and terrible things in our city, but you can fight that darkness through prayer. God has given you influence over our city through prayer. Just like Abraham, we can intercede. When the seeds of our church were just stirring in us and we were in the process of starting it, I was driving across town and I happened to be praying and I just got this vision, just this picture. And, you know, sometimes pictures pop into my mind and they mean nothing, just absolutely nothing, just a random picture. But when this one popped into my mind, I thought there's something to it and I, 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 I jotted down what it was, but it was a picture of a, our city in a map. Uh, just kind of laid out in a map, kind of a 3D map laid out in front of all from the south all the way to the north, the west, to the, to the east. And we're getting ready to start this church and praying for our city and praying that we would be useful in our city. And just had this picture of just a wave, you know, kind of starting in Galveston and, and coming all the way over our city. And it was just a picture of what Bayou City Fellowship wanted to be a part of. That we alone were not the wave of the kingdom of God crashing onto our city, but we would be a part of that wave. That for all the darkness in our city, for all the crime, for all the pain, for all the hurt, for all the injustice, that the Spirit of God would come over us like a wave. And the church, our church and all the churches together that claim the name of Jesus would bring the kingdom to our city. I mean, that's what Jesus says in chapters of the scripture like, 
Matthew chapter 13, when he just talks about the kingdom is like, the kingdom is like, the kingdom is like, and he says in there, the kingdom is like a mustard seed that goes into the ground. It starts small, it's insignificant, it's the smallest of all the seeds, but then it grows into something large that gives covering, that our prayers can go into the soil of our city, and they may be so insignificant and small But one day, God will honor those prayers and out of the soil of our city will come a work of God that gives covering to our city, that will intercede on behalf of our city. Or like the kingdom is like leaven, which a woman takes and even though it's just a little bit of leaven, she mixes it all in until the whole thing is leaven. That the church, our church and every church that represents the name of Jesus, that we would pray that the kingdom of God would come to our city and one day in all parts of our city, the kingdom comes out of the soil. So where do we start? Where should we pray? Our city is so huge, the needs are so huge. What is the primary darkness in your part of town? the place where you live and move. Don't worry about the places where you don't ever go. But in your part of town, where you spend a majority of your time, what is the primary darkness there? Maybe it's like South Houston, where there just seems to be sexually oriented business, one right after another, big signs all the way down from Houston to Galveston. Why don't you pray, if that's the particular darkness in your part of town, that the the righteousness of the kingdom, the purity of the kingdom would come out of the ground there like a mustard seed. Maybe you live in a part of town like we see in Southwest Houston all over the news. Murder, violence seems to be anchored always in that part of town. Maybe there's violence in your part of town and you would pray that the peace of the kingdom would come over like a wave. Maybe you live out in the suburbs where we feel insulated from all of those things, but where the darkness is a competitive spirit, secrecy, where we're trying to show everybody that our kids are better than your kids and cars are better than your cars and our lives are more perfect than your lives. Let's pray for the unity of the kingdom the security of the kingdom to come out of the ground there. What is the primary darkness in your part of town? Maybe you live inside the loop and there seems to be a lot of new age enlightenment, human empowerment there. Let's pray that the humility of the kingdom, the truth of the kingdom would be found there. Matthew chapter 23 Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's on the eve of his suffering. He's on the eve of being rejected completely and totally by the people of Jerusalem. And this is what it says in verse 37. This is what he says. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. 
So even on the eve of being rejected, he's still broken and moved for the city. See, the first step, I think, to spiritual awakening in Houston, Texas, is for us to awaken to praying for the people of our city. That God has sovereignly decided that he will be affected by your prayers. And what if he wanted to do and was willing and was more than able to do an incredible move of God. He's just waiting for the church to pray. To intercede, to step in. And say, even though I've been hurt by this city, even though it's not perfect, even though it's not exactly the city that I would love to live in. It's my city and I'm moved by it and I want to interject myself. See, we are in the spiritual heritage of Abraham. We are followers of Jesus. And they were moved by their cities. So we should be moved to pray for ours. So let's pray together. Father, we do pray for Houston, Texas. pray that you would just turn your face towards it. That your light right now would break through these clouds and would shine on our city. We pray that you would stir our hearts to pray. Father, I pray that we would not be cold that we would not be numb, but that we would follow in the steps of Abraham and Jesus. So awaken our hearts. Awaken our hearts to people. In Jesus' name.